Good morning. Isn't it great that they play classical music on the tube stations? You notice that? How many of you notice that? Some of you haven't noticed that at all, yeah? Some tube stations, they play classical music. And I used to think, well, that's really nice. I wonder why they do that. Well, apparently a few years ago, they did an experiment in Canada. And they decided to play classical music in public places to see if it would reduce the antisocial behavior in those places. And it did. And so they repeated the experiment in Tyne and Weir in this country, in the metro system there. Uh, yeah, so from that direction. And uh, the same thing happened. And so they decided to repeat that across uh, all the tube system in uh, London as well. So this um, appeared in the Guardian newspaper in 2008. So it goes back a little way. It says this, classical music has been part of Vauxhall Station's way of life for some time. But now it's been announced that Transport for London's scheme to reduce crime and antisocial behavior has been so effective that it's been extended to 40 locations across the network. Elm Park on the district line became the first tube station to try it in 2003, a place where there was such a gang problem that train drivers were afraid to stop there. Within 18 months, robberies were cut by 33%, assaults on staff by 25%, and vandalism by 37%, as the voice of Pavarotti made troublemaker Scarpa. <laughs> Theories vary as to why it works. But as for the rest of us, when TfL did a survey of 700 commuters, they overwhelmingly agreed that hearing classical music made them feel happy, less stressed, and relaxed. Well, music has an impact on our lives, doesn't it? It can stir emotions, it can help us, it can calm us, uh, it can stir up emotions as well in different ways. Uh, we all love music. There is something about music which uh, helps us to connect with something else, maybe a, more of a spiritual side of our lives. And in a moment, we're going to be looking at a story in the Old Testament that uh, relates very much to that, where the way that music, particularly worship music, has an impact on our lives. We are in a series, sermon series, called Worship and War, and we'll be looking at the life of David and some of the uh, moments in his life which, in which he wrote psalms connected to those particular moments in his life, and uh, we'll be exploring different psalms as we go through. But today I want to continue to lay a foundation uh, for this particular series. Steph kicked it off last week with the story about the prophet Samuel coming to Bethlehem. And Samuel comes to Bethlehem and seeks out Jesse and his sons. And you'll remember the story, well-known story. And he is there to anoint the next king of Israel. And so Jesse presents all his sons to him. And it's none of those sons. God says, no, it's none, none of these sons. Uh, so Samuel has to ask, is there another son? And Jesse says, well, there's, there's the son who's out in the fields looking after the sheep. And the prophet says, well, wait, we won't do anything else until he arrives. And when he arrives, uh, Samuel hears from God, this is the man you're to anoint, David. And so David 
from that point onwards is filled with the Spirit, he's in, anointed in front of his brothers, which would have been very meaningful. They would have known that that meant that at some point he would become king of Israel. But at that precise moment, Saul is the king of Israel. He was their first king. Uh, the people were desperate to have a king, and so Samuel finally uh, anoints Saul, and Saul leads them. He starts well. But there comes a point where Samuel says to Saul, uh, when you get to Gilgal, a place called Gilgal, you need to wait for me. Uh, wait for me seven days, and then I will come and I will offer the sacrifices, and then you can continue in your battle against the Philistines. And so the, the point came where, having started really well, Saul gets to Gilgal, and he's got his army there, and then the Philistines are gathering, and he waits seven days for Samuel to arrive. But his, uh, his army are getting a little bit nervous, and some of them are starting to, do, to, to drift away. And so Saul panics, and he decides that on the, when he gets to the seventh day, he will offer the sacrifice. He won't wait for Samuel. He'll offer the sacrifice just to try and reassure his men. And then Samuel does turn up later on, and he says, look, what, what have you done? And Saul says, well, I've, I've sacrificed uh, because the, the men were getting nervous. And Samuel says, you didn't do well uh, because you've stepped into the role of the prophet. You're the king. That's, that's, you have authority there, but you've stepped into this place where you shouldn't have been. You shouldn't have been doing the sacrifice. And he says, God will take away the kingdom from you and your, your family line and give it to somebody else. So from that point onwards, Samuel's looking for the next king, and he finally comes to Bethlehem, anoints David, and David is filled with the Spirit. That's the background to this story. And we're going to look at 1 Samuel 16 in a moment, and look at the next section, which is verse 13 to 23. Uh, so we'll continue with the story of how David, what happened with David after that time when he was anointed by Samuel. Now whenever we come to the Old Testament, we need to remember that the Old Testament points us towards Jesus, points us towards the New Testament, and the life of David in particular points us towards Jesus. He is, if you like, um, he foreshadows Jesus, he prefigures Jesus in so many ways. So as we go through this series, we'll, there'll be moments where we'll be able to connect uh, the life of David to the life of Jesus. We know that David grew up in an obscure kind of setting. He's uh, out in the fields looking after the sheep. He's not uh, grown up in a palace. Very similar to Jesus, he grew up in obscurity. Uh, we know that he was a shepherd, David, and that Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. So Jesus is sort of how much more Jesus is of, of this model David is presenting to us. Uh, he's pointing constantly towards Jesus. Uh, David is uh, anointed for kingship. Jesus is the king of kings. Uh, David is filled with the Spirit ongoingly from this point onwards when Samuel comes to him. Jesus is a man, uh, the man God, full of the Holy Spirit and in tune with the Holy Spirit. So in many ways, uh, David points us towards Jesus and we'll keep seeing that as we go through the series. So let's read 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, through to verse 23. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. 
And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the liar. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the liar. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them to his son David, his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul, he would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. I just want to make a few comments on the story I've just read, and then we'll go on from there to look at this theme of worship and war. 1 Samuel 16, 13, it says that the prophet Samuel anointed David and the Spirit of the Lord came upon him with great power. And then in the very next verse, verse 14, we read that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. The person that's written this, this text has done this deliberately. It's shown that David is now the one who is filled with the Spirit and Saul is the one who has lost the spirit. And so from this point onwards, David is, is increasing and Saul is diminishing. It's going to be many years before David becomes king of Israel, but you can see from the point this point onwards uh, that David is rising and rising and rising in his power and Saul is gradually losing his power. And it's all to do with the anointing of the Holy Spirit on David. And Saul, unfortunately, hasn't repented of what he's done and has, has held on to this uh, jealousy which increases in his life. And so he diminishes. Verse 14 also talks about an evil spirit sent from God, um, which for us reading it sort of feels a little bit confusing. Surely God doesn't send uh, evil spirits. But you have to understand that in the Old Testament, the writers... Uh, just viewed God as being over everything, which of course he is. And so the way they would write is just that they would say everything's from God. And so what this text means is, it means is that God allows the, this evil spirit to come upon Saul to fulfill, ultimately to fulfill God's purposes. But that this evil spirit is under God's control, uh, that he 
this spirit operates within the divinely determined boundaries. So that's just the way the writers of the Old Testament would have viewed it and written it. And you'll find other examples in the Old Testament as well uh, that seem to suggest that God sends something evil. But it's their understanding is it's all under God's sovereignty. The Hebrew word used for evil spirit uh, could describe something that is troubling or annoying or harmful. And as you look through the story of Saul, you find that he has these uh, dark moods that come upon him every so often, the jealousy that he, we see as well, uh, and depression comes upon him. But there was clearly also some sort of spiritual element in all of this. Um, David is brought in to try and minister to Saul in these dark moods when the evil spirit comes on him. And we're not told that he actually sang any songs, uh, but some commentators speculate that he didn't just play the harp, but he also uh, sang songs and probably sang some of the psalms that we have in the book of Psalms. You see, this uh, young man, David, was probably around about 16 at this time. Uh, he'd been out in the fields uh, looking after the sheep. He took his guitar with him, or his lyre, or harp, or whatever the instrument was, equivalent of a guitar today, and he spent hours and hours, I'm sure, uh, just uh, practicing his, his instrument, just getting to, to know how to play it, writing songs. Uh, I, you know, I can remember one teenager who used to sit for hours practicing his guitar and writing songs, and uh, yeah, that's what teenagers do. And uh, so David had perfected his skills in the whole area of, of playing and singing and writing songs, and it's not unreasonable to think that when Saul was, was being troubled by this evil spirit that David didn't just play, but probably sang some spiritual songs as well, some psalms with truth in them, which uh, affected the evil spirit. The evil spirit could not stay in the same space. It was driven out. It was suppressed by the worship that David was bringing. I think that's a reasonable speculation. Um, and so... This is the situation where David is brought in to minister to Saul, and uh, it is effective. The evil spirit leaves him when he worships, when he brings his music into that setting. Now, the NIV Study Bible sums up this passage in this way, just uh, highlights a couple of things about David. It says, David is introduced to Saul's court and to Israel as a gifted musician and a warrior. With these two gifts, he would become famous in Israel and would lead the nation to spiritual and political vigor. So the theme of worship and war is neatly uh, combined in the character of David. He is a man after God's own heart. He knows how to worship. He's developed a relationship with God over those young years. Uh, but he's also uh, a man who can fight. He is known as somebody that can... Uh, you know, ward off bears and fight lions. He talks about that in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Uh, so he's a warrior, but he's also a worshipper. He is a skillful musician and a spirit-filled person. So he is skilled and he's filled, the, the two things. And sometimes, you know, in, in church life and in worship times, you, you get one or you get the other. You don't always get the two together. And it's important that when we come to worship, we have musicians and singers that are skilled, uh, but also filled with the Holy Spirit as they help to lead others in worship. 
Verse 17 says, uh, Saul says, find someone who plays well. It's not enough just to be spirit-filled, you have to have some musical ability. Uh, now in some churches there is very little musical ability because they just don't have people in the church that have got a lot of musical ability and that's a, that's a challenge. Uh, I think in this church we have abundant riches of people with musical ability and I just want to say thank you to all of you who serve us week after week uh, singing or playing and just bringing all that skill to us to help us in worship. There are churches up and down this country who would love to have one of the Revelation Church musicians to help them in worship on Sunday. Just one. They would be so thrilled. Uh, we have an abundance of riches. Let's not take it for granted. Um, but, you know, what happens in some churches is that people who are filled with the Holy Spirit and feel they've got a, a prophetic gift and they may well have that, also feel called to lead worship. Uh, but they can't necessarily sing in tune or stay in time, so that's a problem. And so they're filled, but they're not skilled. Um, okay, now I want to say about this church, we have both, and we're very blessed in that. But Saul is looking for somebody who can play well. This is a musician that's going to serve in the king's palace. This is, you know, this has got to be excellent. It can't just be, you know, somebody that's having a go that knows three, three chords and can string them together a bit. David knew how to play. And so when we come to worship the king, when we're in the king's presence, we want to give the best we can give. And so that skill is important. Uh, verse 18 says, the servant says, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. Uh, it's interesting that even though David was, I guess, out with the sheep so, so much and was you know, out there and nobody really knew he was out there, the word had got out that this guy could play. He was a skillful musician. Um, he knows how to play the lyre. He, he, the, the servant felt confident to recommend David to Saul. And so Saul says, well, let's, let's bring him in and uh, let's, let's, help, let's hope he can help me. And so David has uh, built up his skill set over the years as a young man and he's now being brought in. This is God's plan to bring him into the palace and to uh, put him in a position where he actually can serve and then become, ultimately become king. Uh, so sometimes you get people that are very uh, gifted in terms of spirit, they're very spirit-filled, not necessarily skilled in music. Um, I'm always a bit surprised, I just went to a conference once, a large conference in London, a Christian conference, and typically you've got a big platform, uh, thousands of people there, big band on the stage, and three people leading the worship, uh, all singing and all playing guitar. Um, and I was in the front row, and I remember looking up, and I was trying to worship, but I was looking up and realizing that these three guitarists uh, could only play in the key of G. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> they knew G, C, D, E minor, A minor, and if they got really ambitious, they went for B minor. But basically, they played uh, in one key, and then when the, when the key changed, they put the cap on the guitar so they could play the same chords but further up the fretboard playing in a different key. That gets too technical for you, I'm sorry, but they were, they were just basically, um, you know, able to play in one key. Uh, now they got away with it because they've got a really fantastic band behind them that could really play, um, but I was kind of a bit shocked that they got these people that weren't, they were obviously spirit-filled people and they were leading worship well, but they weren't that skilled. And so it was kind of a, a, a shame, but they, the bands were very skilled, so it's it okay. But we need both, we need the filled and the skilled, and uh, uh, many churches obviously struggle to get that combination. 
Um, so David is a man who is full of the Spirit, and it says actually in, in verse 13 that he is filled um, on that occasion, and it sounds as if he's, it, the Spirit came on him powerfully from that day. So it sounds as if the Spirit was continually coming on him. So often, most of the time in the Old Testament, the Spirit came on people for a specific reason, for a specific occasion. But with David, he seems to retain that, uh, that, that blessing of the Spirit being on him. And it says in verse 8, 18, the Lord is with him. So David was full of the Spirit. He was a skillful musician. He was clearly uh, being blessed by God and used by God. But being filled with the Spirit isn't just a requirement for the people that sort of help to lead the worship. It's a requirement for all of us as we come to worship, because we're all worshippers. And so we, we shouldn't be complacent about that. When we come to worship, we should be uh, ready to move into worship, make a contribution, uh, be, be willing to be open to the Holy Spirit to lead us and to fill us and continue to fill us. Um, in Ephesians 5.18, it, it talks about, it says, do not be drunk. Uh, on wine, uh, which leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that, that word is continuous present tense. It's go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not that we have one experience uh, in our lives and the Spirit comes on, on us and that's the end of it, but it's an ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. So much like David, we need to keep coming back and receiving more of the Spirit uh, and uh, receiving this, the Holy Spirit, not just for worship times, but for every aspect of our lives. Because we need the Holy Spirit's help in our family lives. We, know we need the Holy Spirit's help when we go to work, trying to make decisions, trying to work out uh, what, you know, how to tackle a project, how to relate to a work colleague. Uh, there are all sorts of situations in which we need to be constantly filled with the Holy Spirit in order to uh, serve and to work and to live uh, the best way that we can. And so like that picture in Psalm 1 when you've got the tree by the river, by the streams, we need to be planted firmly by the, the, the flow of the Holy Spirit, constantly drawing for the Holy Spirit and bearing fruit in our lives. So David was a worshipper, but we also learned from verse 18 that he was a warrior. Um, I think we hear a lot about worship. We have uh, lots of worship albums. We have lots of uh, worship resources on YouTube and other, other online resources. We, we have conferences, things like David's Tent. Um, there's all sorts of stuff around worship. So, uh, you know, people are, are interested in worship. They're benefiting from the worship songs that are out there. But I wonder about the warrior side, whether as a British church we're perhaps quite so good as the, uh, the spiritual warfare side. Uh, maybe we need to recognize that we're engaged, not now in physical battles as in David's time, but we are engaged in a spiritual battle, in spiritual warfare. And maybe we need to learn more, I'm sure we need to learn more about how to do that, about how to contend for the gospel, how to fight in prayer for things, how to fight the good fight, in, in our lives, as the old hymn put it, fight the good fight. In all sorts of ways, there is a battle going on for us so that we can continue to make progress. And so the worship songs encourage us and they help us to focus on God, uh, but there's also this whole area of war warfare which we're engaged in as well. 
And church leaders need to be courageous sometimes to uh, help people to move forwards uh, in their in, in their faith. And so there are courageous decisions that need to be made in order to gain ground in the extending the kingdom of God. There are courageous decisions that need to be made in terms of church planting and encouraging congregations to battle in prayer and to keep seeking God, and keep uh, preaching the gospel and to share the gospel. And it's easy for us to feel, you know, enjoy the worship bit, but there's also the the war side of it, the warfare side of it, which is a very real thing. We don't see, but we are in, in, effectively engaged in this battle uh, with the enemy. The good thing is that worship and warfare uh, go together. And actually, when we worship, there is something that is happening in the heavenly places, which is also to do with pushing back the enemy. Um, and so throughout the Old Testament, you see this link between worship and war um, throughout Israel's history. Let me give you some examples. So every time the Israel went into battle, um, they were generally, as you read through the Old Testament, they would generally offer sacrifices. The priests would offer sacrifices uh, before they went into battle because it's effectively they wanted God to be with them in the battle and get them therefore have victory over the enemy. Uh, Israel wasn't alone in that. All the nations would have called on their gods before they went into battle um, uh, to try and get favor from their gods so that they could win the battle. But that was, that was a pattern where you saw worship connected with war. Um, when Joshua was at the walls of Jericho, uh, and they, they walked around the walls of Jericho so many times, but there were trumpet players involved in that. There were people involved in bringing praise and worship to God as they went round the walls of Jericho. So again, worship uh, precedes victory. Um, but then one of the best examples of this is probably found in 2 Chronicles 20 in the time of King Jehoshaphat. Uh, I'm sure you're all very familiar with this story and the King, and King Jehoshaphat, but just in case you aren't, we're going to read uh, 2 Chronicles 20, 21 to 26, which talks about a time when worship and war very much flowed together. After consulting with the people, the king, Jehoshaphat, ordered some musicians to put on the robes they wore on sacred occasions and to march ahead of the army singing, Praise the Lord, his love is eternal. When they began to sing, the Lord threw the invading armies into a panic. The Ammonites and the Moabites attacked the Edomite army and completely destroyed it. And then they turned on each other in savage fighting. When the Judean army reached a tower that was in the desert, they looked towards the enemy and saw that they were all lying on the ground dead. Not one had escaped. Jehoshaphat and his troops moved in to take the loot. They spent three days gathering the loot but there was so much they could not take everything. On the fourth day, they assembled in Berakar Valley and praised the Lord for all he had done. Now, if you were in the worship band or in the choir that day, you would have felt a little bit nervous about going out ahead of the army. I mean, you might have been happier to be behind the army so the army could kill the enemies and you could come through and sort of praise the Lord, you know, God's given us victory. But on this occasion, they get to go first. 
And so they're out there ahead of the army, I should think very nervously, praising the Lord. But when they get to the enemy, they find the enemy destroys one another. God has gone ahead and destroyed this enemy. Now this story is just a, a wonderful example of the way that worship and warfare uh, kind of work together. John Piper says, from this story, I would draw out the following exhortation. Spiritual worship and spiritual warfare should be carried out with singing. In verse 21, when the people went out to meet the enemy, the choir went before them with songs of victory. And even more than that, I think the writer wants us to learn from verse 22 that the enemies of God are thrown into confusion by the songs of God's people. Or, to put it another way, God has appointed the use of spiritual songs as an effective weapon against his arch enemy, Satan. There is something very powerful that happens in the heavenly realms when we come to worship. Uh, whether we're worshipping here on a Sunday or in a, a small group or wherever we are, worshipping even by ourselves, we, yes, of course, we're connecting with God. We are drawing close to Him uh, and we are ministering to Him and He's responding to us and we're, we're, we're coming into the presence of God. But there's something else going on as well. As we sing worship songs, if we sing words of truth, there is something going on in the heavenly realms which we don't see don't fully understand, but the enemy is being driven back every time we worship. That's the reality. That's what this story teaches us. And uh, we can be confident that we can take more ground in terms of extending the kingdom, and part of that will be because we are a worshipping people. We're a people that gathering regularly, meeting with God, feeling and experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit, but equally, at the same time, the enemy is being pushed back. It's part of our spiritual warfare. Piper goes on to tell an interesting story about the role of worship in spiritual warfare. He says, four years ago, I was called late one night to come to an apartment where supposedly there was a, a demon-possessed woman. I called Tom Stella. And we went together while our wives prayed at home. What we found was a woman held in a room by some young Christian women who were intent on seeing the demon driven out of this woman. For about two hours, I talked to her and read the scriptures and prayed prayers of deliverance. She became increasingly violent, knocking the Bible out of my hand and grabbing the prayer sheets and shoving me. At one point, about one o'clock in the morning, when the conflict rose to a fever pitch between the word of God and the satanic force in this woman, someone in the group began to sing. It was one of our familiar worship songs. We sang it again and again, and the Lord gave us new words for it each time. The effect on her was dramatic. She began to tremble and threaten us if we didn't stop. Then she threw herself on the floor and screamed for Satan not to leave her. She went into convulsions and then went limp. And when she came to, she remembered nothing of what happened and was willing to read scripture and pray. When we worship, there is something going on in those heavenly realms which we cannot see, but it's very real. As we progress in this series, we're going to connect with different psalms at key moments in David's life. We're going to get an insight into his thinking and his perspective. 
We'll walk with him through episodes of sadness and madness, vexation and victory, relief and revenge, sin and trauma, and we'll see how he processes everything and experiences everything and yet remains anchored in God's love. In all the battles and the scrapes and the disappointments and the frustrations he goes through, we're going to see a deep, robust faith that sustains him in the worst times. We'll share with, with him in the high points and the low points, the rejoicing and the suffering. The Psalms offer us real feelings and real struggles that I think all of us can relate to, and it will give us reference points for our own journey with God. Listen, if you want to be a worshipper like David, you have to know the Lord. You have to know him. You can't uh, be a worshipper. You can sing worship songs, but you can't be a true worshipper unless you have a relationship with Jesus. And so, you know, if you're here today and you, you're not sure quite where you stand with God, you're not sure whether you are a follower, uh, you're interested, you'd like to know more about becoming a Christian or what that means, I want to urge you to talk to somebody that you know is a believer, uh, maybe to some to myself or somebody here at the front, somebody who knows part of the church, and say, how do I make that personal connection with Jesus? Jesus has died on the cross for every one of us to make that possible, so that we can have a personal relationship with him. And if you want to truly worship Jesus, if you want to truly know the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, if you want to know the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life, then you've got to start by knowing him. And David was a man who knew him, knew him really well, a man after God's own heart, a man who, who, who worshipped constantly, a man who drew close to God constantly, but also had this ability to fight uh, for the Lord as well. And so we're going to discover more and more about him as we go through the series. And I want to encourage you, if you're not yet there in terms of giving your, your life to Christ, this will be a great time to do that as we get into this series. Let's pray together. Lord, I want to thank you so much that you give us stories in the Old Testament about real people who have real struggles and battles in their lives. And Lord, the, the information we've got about David uh, is quite extensive. Lord, we get an insight into not only what he did, but how he felt in the process of going through these particular challenges and struggles. Lord, we thank you for the book of Psalms, which uh, gives us so much of, of his songs, so many of his songs. We thank you for the text, that, like the one we've just read through, 1 Samuel and so on, where we get to understand what he did in his life. We see all the mistakes, we see all the good things, Lord, we thank you that in so many ways we'll be able to relate so closely to him. And I pray, Lord, that you would deepen our own faith in you, you deepen our own ability to worship you and to be known as worshippers, but you'd also strengthen us and give us a robust faith so that we're people who are able to battle with you as well and to fight the good fight, and to find victory after victory. Amen.